Welcome to this gift podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. Most people want to get a good deal when they travel, but frugal travel is a whole category on its own. There are websites like Cheap Air, Cheap O Air, Insanely Cheap Flights, and Euro Cheapo to navigate. And the sharing economy lets travelers crash on couches, use someone else's car, or even borrow a bike. On today's episode of the Skift Podcast, we're talking cheap travel, who does it, and what they might give up to save some bucks. Joining us in this gift office are Dan Saltstein, a travel editor at the New York Times who edits the Frugal Traveler column, and Tom Myers, founder and editor-in-chief of the booking and advice site Eurocheapo.com. And podcast fans might know Tom from the New York City history podcast that he co-hosts, The Bowery Boys. They're here with me, Skift podcast host Hannah Sampson and editor Andrew Shavakman. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, let's just start with an easy definition, or maybe it's not so easy. Who do you consider to fit the definition of a frugal traveler? And um, Dan, we'll start with you. I feel like it's sort of an impossible question to answer in some <laughs> ways. The, the way we sort of judge feedback on the, on the frugal traveler column that we run um, every week is if we're getting an equal number of people telling us that we're not being frugal enough, and that we're being too frugal, and that's probably about right. <laughs> so, we, I mean, we've done stories where the the I think the best example is lodging because lodging, you know, I mean, you can camp. That's very frugal. You can stay at a hostel. I mean, depending on where you are. Let's, let's say you're in Scandinavia, a really expensive part of the world. Um, we actually did uh, Seth Kugel, our now former frugal traveler columnist, um, did a story where he camped outside of Oslo. I think it was like ten bucks for the camping spot. Lots of people were like, I'm not going to camp outside. I'm not, I have no interest <laughs> in that, um, which is obviously fair enough. Um, but if he had stayed at a hotel, even a very cheap hotel, it probably would have been 80 euro. I mean, it was in the middle of the summer, so like 80 euros, 100 euros, something like that. And of course, that doesn't sound frugal at all. So it, it's, I feel like it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. Um, I know what frugal is to me. I also think you can sort of break it down into budget travel and shoestring travel. Budget travel is sort of, um, not necessarily being cheap, but just trying to find deals and um, sort of, you know, having some having a sort of plan in your head for for saving money. Whereas I feel like shoestring travel is really spending as little as you can on any possible, um, and that's cutting out a lot of stuff. I think inevitably. So it depends. What do you think, Tom? I think uh, I'll go with what Dan said. Um, I. I agree. I think I like that distinction between budget and shoestring. Um, I would also add maybe savvy travel, you know, budget savvy travel, um, because I I guess I consider myself a budget traveler. Um, I, I hope I am since I'm editing Euro Cheapo, but it's really, it's more like a game for me. You know, I want to have the best experience that I can possibly have at my budget and how can I save money when I'm traveling, how, or how can I, how can I not waste money? That's the biggest thing. So there are ways of planning your trip, being smart and savvy about planning your trip, um, and a lot of that's just education. You know, how do you book your train tickets if you're going to Europe? How do you book your hotels? How do you book your car? You know, these are all really big t- ticket items. Um, there are good ways. There are like very common ways of booking. All of these things are arranging for all of these things. 
that include a lot of price gouging. So if you can know about that in advance, you can save a lot of money. I think, I mean, it sounds like we can all agree that like the budget traveler is somebody who who does have some income to play with. This isn't like the person who um, is really living on the poverty line and just cannot, um, you know, afford anything more than a bus ticket because they have to travel to for an emergency or something. Right. I mean, I mean, this is really somebody who does have some wiggle room to get. Yeah. I would just say that on, on my site, we see people, um, who come in because I can see what people are booking in terms of lodging. And so I do, I do see a lot of people, you know, who have evidently done a search and then sorted by cheapest price and just book the absolute cheapest thing. But most of the hotel reservations that are made through the site are actually for places that are maybe two-star hotels. You know, they're, they're just, they're smart price. They're not the absolute cheapest. You know, it doesn't take that much skill to go to like kayak and do a search and just sort by price and just, you know, or a hostel world or, you know, Airbnb and just book the cheapest thing you can find. I think also for most people, most people have to make a decision about what they want to spend their money on, right? So, I mean, there are people obviously out there in the world who can, you know, spend as much as they want and everything. Um, for somebody, like using myself as an example, I don't really care that much about the where I'm staying. About, I mean, I don't want to, you know, stay in a rat hole, but, um, and I also have a daughter, so I don't hurt staying in a rat hole. But um, uh, my attitude is I just don't spend a lot of time in hotel or an Airbnb or whatever. So I don't really feel like that's where I want to spend my money. I do really care about what I'm eating. So for me, it's sort of, um, you know, that's a priority for me. Um, I think, you know, a great example that I'm sure uh, is uh, flying first class or not. I mean, for most people, it's sort of out of the question. For people who do have the money, they probably, you know, there's a certain section of population that probably looks at that ticket price and says, you know, I you know, do I want to spend that extra $500, $800 on this ticket or do I want to sort of spread it out over the next week doing XYZ yeah. activities? We see low-cost carriers like Spirit and Ryanair catering to probably those people who don't mind giving up a lot of their comforts or rights in order to get around cheaply. Select service hotels are one of the fastest growing segments as well. How is the industry responding to what seems to be increased demand for travel with fewer frills and lower price points? Well, it's funny, yeah, you bring up the low-cost carriers because actually like EasyJet, for example, has opened, well, opened maybe 10 years ago already, a, a um, chain of hotels called Easy Hotels around Europe with the exact same price model. So, uh, you know, you can book the room. Uh, there's one that I recommend in, uh, in Amsterdam in the Peep neighborhood, which is a great neighborhood, um, very cool. Um, and it has... Absolutely. The cheapest rates, um, usually whenever I search, and it's like, you know, 73 euros a night or something like that. But that is just the room, you know, just like an easy jet flight or a Ryanair flight. You get the room, you get the essentials, uh, air conditioning and a shower and, and a sink. And the room's about a size, you know, the size of a closet in another, in another hotel. If you want to use your TV, if you want to use the Wi-Fi, you have to pay extra for it. So we see this trend going, you know, straight into uh, accommodations. 
Yeah, that's a good example, I think, of what I was talking about in terms of where you want to spend your money. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that as you described it, I'm like, that doesn't sound so bad. Like, that, you know, like I'd be okay, as long as it's clean, yeah. I'd be okay with that. Um, and I think with the, you know, with, I mean, the carriers is another good example where um, I think most people, well, I don't know if, this, I don't, I don't know if most people do this, but I, I, I mean, I, my sense is that a lot of people do just go to Kayak and sort of, you know, or booking sites like that and sort of find the, the, you know, the lowest fares. Um, you know, some people don't mind having a stopover or two. Um, some people do. Um, but I do think there is this, you know, huge world opening up with the cheap carriers, cheap hotel chains. I mean, I went down to New Orleans a couple months ago and um, needed a place to crash for a few nights. I ended up finding an unbelievable rate at an aloft, which is just sort of a, I mean, there's, I don't know, 300 of them or something like that, mostly in Asia. And, um, and um, it's not quite as bare bones as, as when you were talking about in Amsterdam, but it's, you know, it's, it's pretty bare bones. Um, and, um, but it, that's served my purpose just, just fine. The other thing I think in terms of lodging, um, and uh, it's not exact equivalent, obviously, with the cheap carriers, is um, our uh, home sharing sites. I mean, that, you know, for, for me, I have, you know, wife and a daughter, um, and Airbnb has just completely transformed the way we travel. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it's especially in certain parts of the world. It is so easy to find um, a relatively cheap place to stay um, in an area. You can choose the area you want. You're not sort of stuck in like the hotel district, um, and you can sort by amenities and all that stuff. So those Airbnb, homestay. I mean, all those sites. Um, I think. Uh, in some ways, are doing for lodging what the what the low cost carriers are doing for flying. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question about how the sharing economy is like shaking up the budget travel space because it's not like an industry response to consumer trends; it's like an industry threat from mm-hmm. the outside. Um, so, do you think is that like the new wave of budget travel, or is it just? widening the options. Uh, yeah, I think it depends because it depends on the traveler. It depends on your needs. It depends if you're traveling with your family, if you're open to staying in somebody else's apartment, you know, and it, it depends on what kind of, let's just stick with Airbnb. It, it depends on what kind of Airbnb rental it is. You know, is it something where you're renting in somebody's apartment and they're going to be around to help you if you need help? Is it somebody who's bought up 15 different apartments in Berlin and they just have a small you know, sort of unregulated hotel business going on. Um, And you hope that they're going to be around to help you if something comes up. Um, If you're open to all that, that's great. You know, uh, other people, maybe when you're just swinging through for one day or two days, you don't want to go through all that hassle. You'd rather just be able to check right in at, you know, uh, with the front desk staff and know that there's going to be somebody there when you arrive, no matter what time. You don't have to think about logistics. You know, it's. I think it depends. Um, Skift has written a lot about this, obviously, about how the traveler's own um, preferences have changed, who it, who finds it really appealing, how that changes with demographics, nationalities, business versus leisure. You know, there are all these different considerations. Yeah, it's sort of hard to imagine um, the the sharing stuff sort of, you know, overturning the industry entirely. Because I think you, you're always going to have people with needs beyond um, what those um, but the, what those sharing businesses can offer. So like, you know, I mean, business traveler is a great, great, great example. I can't imagine, you know, uh, going somewhere for business for two or three days. Um, all my meetings are downtown and I, 
I'm staying in an apartment. It doesn't really make sense. Um, so I think a lot of those uh, hotel chains are are you know going to have that as a base to draw off of. And I think there's still you know I mean I looked I was looking for an apartment in New York City really for the first time ever, frankly, even though I lived my whole life here uh, a couple of years ago, and I, I I just could not believe the prices I was seeing. Um, I mean, people, for hotels, or for hotels, yeah. yeah. I mean, people paying you know twelve hundred dollars a night, two night minimums. Um, for at at you know big name hotel uh, hotels around New York, somebody's paying that, and I can only assume it's some combination of business travelers and high end travelers who not budget travelers, not budget travelers, <laughs> not budget travelers. And I'm sure you know, I mean, sure there you know there are people where you reach a certain level of wealth, and it's like, what does it matter what the you know what the hotel room costs? But I think, but I think for the vast majority of travelers, um, those places are just going to stay off limits. Um, and I think what you're seeing now is just a widening of options um, for those, as opposed to one part of the industry displacing another. I I find it um, also really interesting. I've certainly enjoyed staying in Airbnb rentals myself. You know, and on my site on our on Eurocheapo, we. One of our primary businesses is the renting of hotel rooms or the um, you know the hotel search. And all of that is actually powered through our booking partner, uh, which is Booking.com. So there's a much bigger conversation to be had as well about how OTAs, online travel agencies, have evolved and, and over the past 15 years, and how they've affected, in good ways and bad ways. Uh, Hotels, um, big chains, but then also the ones who I, you know, know personally um, from reporting and, and inspecting their rooms for the past fifteen years. Uh, the smaller family-run hotels all over Europe, and that's a very interesting conversation to get into because, in some ways, they benefited from these OTAs because it's like they can suddenly be present, you know, and show up in these search results all over the all over the place and be contenders. And in other ways, you know, it's it's driven up prices um, because there's a big commission there, right? Somehow, either they have to cut back on their services um, or in their own sort of operating budget, or they have to, you know, they, they have to account for that, um, the cost of that commission in their hotel rates. So you could also argue that hotel rates are going up all over uh all over the world because of the technology, right, in the hotel sector. And yet on the unregulated hotel sector or unregulated accommodation sector, it's technology that's driving down hotel rates or overnight rates. You know, so technology is, it's interesting how technology is playing this role of making life in a way and travel cheaper for some people and more expensive for many, many others. One other way that, that you're seeing um, that effect, I think, particularly on um, you know, individual, individually owned small, um, you know, small hotels, B&Bs, stuff like that, um, is for better and worse, unfortunately, they are so dependent now on reviews. On, on on user reviews, and you talked. I mean, I've talked to so many you know people who um, own businesses, and it it can be extremely frustrating because they get one. I mean, we all know sort of how TripAdvisor and 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 those sites sort of are you know they're incredibly useful, but they they do have this inherent flaw that I think you see you do see a lot of reviews um, where it's like oh I you know. Some random thing happened in my room, right. and it's you know my husband uh, was having a bad day. Yeah, that sort of <laughs> first thing. of all, these sort of like unduplicatable sort of you know situations. Point and, one of twenty seven, right? And then somebody gives it a one star review, and you're talking about like a place, you know, that's relatively 
off the beaten path and this person has maybe 10, 15, 20 total reviews. So it's like one or two reviews, bad, right. bad reviews, and they are really in trouble. And I think in some ways, the, you know, the upside is very clear. People can find them so much more easily. They can book with them so much more easily. They can correspond with them so much more easily. All of that is to their benefit. But I think the downside is, is you know, the, the, you know, I think what the downside of the internet basically, which is that like anybody can say anything they want at any time. Right. So it's, you know, I think it's 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 had a profound effect in that way too. Yeah, and the user is actually not accountable, right? right the person exactly. who wrote the review uh, is it remains kind of anonymous. Yeah. Uh, I was talking with a hotel owner in Florence who runs a small, charming one one star hotel, very near the Duomo, good place, um, and. She said, "You know, I wish that we had a, a site where we could review our guests." I was about to say, "It's like you know, I we we're going to feel like we're going down a rabbit hole." But but but, <laughs> it's but my favorite. But rabbit hole. Know, we should do a whole half yeah. hour on TripAdvisor. But th- but th- th- this is where I think you know Airbnb and and Uber and 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 um, businesses like that do diverge from mm. companies like TripAdvisor, which is that in Airbnb you do have a rating, you know. Right. So you, I mean, it's. I mean, I try to be honest and you know forthcoming with with stuff on on Airbnb and and you know I don't I think I'm pretty fair on Uber things like that. But you know you do you do there is a, a back and forth there in the way that there isn't on on a site like TripAdvisor. Although I have to ask, um, and maybe it's not my role to ask anything in this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I, my experience with Airbnb, I rented a place, uh, stayed in an apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and. Came back, you know, and and it was perfectly fine. There was an issue though. There was a like loud AC that came on and like caused me to shriek in the middle of the night at like four <laughs> o'clock in the morning. And I didn't know if that was like worthy of noting in my yeah. review of the place. I wanted to pass that information on to the nice couple right. who ran the place, but it was something that I wanted to tell them about privately. Yeah, I've had that situation too for sure. And yeah. and so then I was in this. It was kind of a catch twenty two, an ethical dilemma mm-hmm. of like, do I actually say the truth because I also know that they're reviewing me? And then I got right. an email from. Airbnb saying, "Hey, they've left a review for you, and you can't see it until you review them." Right. So, right. it's kind of like, wait a second. Yes, there is this like review back and forth, but it seems like maybe it's being it's, compromised. It tilts. A little. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I think that's probably fair. Yeah. Do you think this kind of concern is more or less of an issue for someone who is traveling on limited funds, or who or who is trying to stick to a budget? Because like, you don't want to end up in like you don't want the one star place to end up to be the rat hole that you mm-hmm. fear. Um, but then, you know, you feel like, well, I'm paying $57 a night. So, mm-hmm. you know, what do I expect? Whereas if I were paying $300 a night and something small went wrong, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm paying an arm and a leg for this. Like I want my money's worth. If you're paying $57 a night for a place in, you know, a central place in Paris and you complain about the fact that it was a hot room, you know, because you don't have AC, well, you knew that going in, right? There's no AC because you're paying $57. And so you have to sleep with the, the windows open and you're going to hear like scooters going by, you know, and drunk revelers at one o'clock in the morning. That's life, you know, and if you can't roll with that, then you should probably consider other options. You know, maybe book something cheaper that's on the outskirts of town. You could still find something for $57. It might be in a sleepy suburb and you have to take the RER train in. Yeah, I think I, in some ways to pull back a little bit, I think that the um, the the most important skill for the frugal traveler, for, for a budget conscious traveler, is not just sort of knowing about the tools, it's knowing how to use them. Um, so, I mean, all the stuff we've been talking about are great examples. Airbnb, TripAdvisor, Kayak, any any 
any site where you have the ability to sort of sort and there's filters and that using those um, and also reviews and all that stuff, using those and sort of knowing how to um, knowing what your priorities are and how to use the tool to sort of to sort of um, you know uh, fit your priorities um, is to, in my mind the most important thing right now um, in terms of if you want to save money and have a good experience. Um, so yeah, like I mean you know getting knowledgeable, for example, about like what neighborhoods to stay in is a great example of that. Um, where I think there's this sort of impulse of like that a lot of people have to just like oh, I just want to stay in the middle of middle of town, whatever that means. Um, when in fact, if you stay you know near a subway stop on the outskirts of town, you're going to save a lot of money and it's still going to be pretty easy for you to get around. Um, uh, you know, there are places where it's going to be easier or less to find that information, um, places in the world, I mean, um, to find that information. But I think that, um, I think that, I think that that to me is a really important, um, a really important element of it. And, and it goes back to the, to, you know, knowing how to read reviews online, knowing that like, when you read a review that just is the, you know, the, the, my husband's having a bad day sort of, sort right. of review, just you, <laughs> you sort of take that with a giant grain of salt and you move on to the next one. Um, and you, you, you sort of, you can, you're, you're able to sort of synthesize a lot of information into something that actually makes sense. And in terms of using the tools and using the different sites as well, I think it's important to remember that, especially for budget travelers, um, there are hotels in terms of accommodation, there are hotels that don't work with online travel agencies. Still, today in 2016, you have to go to their own website themselves to book the place, right? So many people, and I say this as somebody who runs a travel site, you know, that makes money when people do book through us, but we also recommend uh, hotels that are small mom and pop places where you have to go directly to their site um, and and book through them or send them an email in some, some yeah. really old school uh, situations. But that's how it was when I started the site back in 2001. Most of the hotels that I went to didn't work with any online travel agency. You know, they relied upon you sending them an email or going to their website, but the functionality for booking wasn't so hot. That has improved. Um, so I think a lot of people today will still just go to like a kayak or something, which is a great tool, do a search and then expect that any hotel that's available is going to show up in those search results. And that's simply not the case. You know, even places that do work with an online travel agency may not have allocated all of their rooms to that agency. In fact, most people only allocate some to certain OTAs, you know, so it could be like I was just in um, Florida a few weeks ago and I found a great place on TripAdvisor and it was a top-rated small B&B in the middle of Key West. And I looked, according to one giant OTA out there, um, did a search for my dates, and it said no, no rooms available. I thought, huh. But then I went to their own website and did the same search, and lo and behold, there were rooms available. They just didn't want to pay the OTA, you know. And even TripAdvisor, by rolling out this new functionality where you can search for your dates, in a way they're also making it harder to to actually just see the top rated hotels because they're really pushing you into doing an availability search so that you can, you know, they can monetize your visit. That's by the way, a good tip in general is always check. I mean, before you book 
you know, with a with a site, always check. I mean, just give a give them a quick phone call or a quick email or whatever. I mean, oftentimes the rates haven't been updated. There's, I mean, uh, you know, you, you may not save a lot of money, but if you can shave off fifty bucks a night or yeah. whatever, I mean, you know, it, it happens all the time. Guys, let's pivot for a second. Dan, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I'm ready to pivot. Dan, one of the first stories your current frugal traveler wrote involved taking a cheap mega bus, which promptly caught fire. Stories after that revealed that while his fellow passengers got a cheap ride, they gave up a lot of their rights and some of them lost all, lost everything they brought with them on the trip and they didn't have any recourse. Does that bring up an ethical issue or a safety issue with budget travel? Are you just less protected? I mean, the short answer is yes. I, you know, the, the, um, the editorial board of the Times, which I, you know, there's a very distinct divide between the editorial section and the, and the, um, the newsroom, um, did an editorial that, that just sort of, um, you know, was inspired by, uh, Lucas's, um, experience in his column. And, um, I think the short answer is yes. I mean, there's an expectation nowadays for somebody in any, no matter what the service is, for somebody to be offering it as cheap as it can possibly be. Now, obviously, what does that mean? What does it mean as cheap as it? I mean, you, you can you can you know that I mean the sort of megabus slogan of as little as a dollar a ride. The vast majority of rides aren't actually a dollar, so you're talking about more like maybe twenty bucks, thirty bucks, forty bucks, fifty bucks. Um, we we followed up with them, um, and I don't you know I, I'm very conscious of like not pointing the finger, you know, solely at Megabus um, that happened to be where he had his experience, and I've certainly heard a bunch of others um, from from readers and 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 other people. Um, but you know, we, we talked to them about you know what is realistic, what is a realistic sort of bottom line um, for a company like that. Um, a lot of it has to do with volume, obviously. That when you have these companies, um, and a lot of them, by the way, are owned by larger companies. So this is you know. Most of those cheap um, bus lines are owned by the big guys, Greyhound and um, et cetera. Um, so, and you know, but the truth is that there is not a huge amount of regulation in that industry. Um, they have internal, you know, internal standards that they try to they try to hit. Um, I mean, one good example uh, that surfaced after we ran uh, Lucas's column. Uh, was that um, seatbelts were only mandated in, I think it was 2008, maybe, um, and only for buses built after that date. So if you happen to have a bus that was built in 2007, it's not going to have seatbelts on it. And there's no law that says they have to put in seatbelts. So, you know, I've heard enough sort of anecdotal stories just to feel like, there is an issue in that industry. Um, and I think you do have to go in knowing what you're getting into. I mean, it's, you know, Airbnb is another example of where, you know, they've tried to sort of self-regulate. Um, I think it works better in some places than others. Um, but you do hear occasional Airbnb horror stories. I mean, it just, it, it, it happens. Um, and, the question becomes, I think, you know, what, I mean, sadly, what are you willing to risk as a traveler to a certain degree? Obviously, when we're talking about air travel. It's a, you know, it's, it's, you know, a, a much larger scale problem in some ways. But 
so I think it's, you know, what, what, what are you willing to risk? And also what are you willing to sort of, um, adapt to? I mean, luck, you know, Lucas was lucky. He, the bus caught on fire, but everybody was off the, the bus. Um, and then I think the other issue with that was, you know, people getting compensated for, for, um, their lost, uh, property. And, um, you know, most of the people that he talked to, it's just, there's no regulation that says, you know, so, you know, Megabus was going to them and going way over what their, what their, um, you know, written policy was in terms of what they can compensate people for, but still not even coming. I mean, if somebody did in fact lose, um, you know, a computer and a large amount of money and moving across country or whatever was going on with them, um, and a passport and all this, you know, time and they're just, there's never, they're never going to make that up. Um, and so I think that it is, it is, it is an issue and it's something that, that I think people need to go into those situations being aware of, um, and knowing what, uh, and also, I mean, one of the things that, one of the big takeaways obviously is reading the fine print, which I mean, we, you know, the times did a whole series on fine print and sort of how it's gotten completely out of control. Every, every one of us, you know, clicks on the, Yes. Okay. Terms. Yes, terms. I, terms, yes, terms I have of read service. this. I have yeah. not read this. Um, and of course, that's you know, generally speaking, that's fine if it's you're downloading iTunes. But if you know, if you're agreeing to a bus trip and you know, uh, uh, you know, an air, air trip, whatever, it's actually worth it to go through that and 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 go into it with armed with all the knowledge that you can possibly be. Yeah. And Tom, I think you know we we wondered, we got to thinking about like, if I'm trying to get the cheapest rate on a hotel, do I, do I need to be thinking about the trickle down effect of, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting this room for really cheap, does that, does that mean that, you know, the housekeeper isn't making a living wage or maybe they only have one, um, you know, one manager who's working 14 hours or, you know, if I'm, if I'm only willing to spend so much, then this, provider is only getting so much and, you know, should that weigh on me? Does that weigh on you? Well, I mean, it could, you know, it could, it, it depends obviously on the particulars of the situation. Um, I think that there are plenty of circumstances where you have a small family run or independent hotel that just doesn't have the same kinds of overhead um, maybe they've owned the, the building that they're in. Maybe they just have other ways of cutting costs. Um, they don't have a marketing budget or something, you know. So there, there might just be ways that they're operating at a cheaper level. And a lot of the places that I know, you know, are small eight-room, ten-room family-run properties where maybe they have one housekeeper and they tend to be almost like part of the family. So those are, those are the kinds of small budget-friendly properties that I really like. Those are different from like small rat holes, you know, where they're just like driving the prices into the ground and you have people who are, um, you know, just constantly updating their rates on all these different websites throughout the day and trying to like always be the cheapest one that comes up at the top of the list. I mean, I think that there might be some ethical issues there. Um, but, you know, there are ethical issues in this, in all kinds of travel, at the high end too, obviously. Yeah. So, I mean, one of, one of the things that I often like to point out about travel just in general as a, a subject and, a, and an industry is it's all sort of skewed because of scale of cost. I mean, if you're talking about, um, you know, um, uh, eating out or shopping or whatever, um, you're talking about, you know, let's say you're talking about, you know, a, a meal, you're talking about uh, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks if you're a spend, suspender. Um, 
travel is just inherently expensive. This is a, this is a lot, so it puts a lot of pressure on sort of every aspect of the of, of the industry. I think it's something that's I'm sort of stating the obvious, but it's something I think a lot of people sort of easily forget. Um, so I think all of the sort of ethical issues around travel, whether they be you know what to tip the the housekeeper or um, all the way up to sort of you know. Um, uh, uh, added fees by the airlines or things like that. Um, it's all sort of skewed because people. It, it's such an investment for for most people, um, and I think for budget travelers, it, it just it means you have to be so much smarter um, about every aspect of your trip because it quickly it, it just adds up so quickly. Um, so anyway, and one thing I would add in terms of ethics and the accommodation sector. Um, Getting back to Airbnb and you know just the sharing economy, I you know and I, I say this is I say this as somebody who has used and enjoys certain aspects of these kinds of sites. Um, many of them don't require the same kinds of regulation. Don't necessarily pay all the same taxes. You know, I've talked to so many. If we're talking ethics here, I've talked to so many small family-run properties, you know, who have to jump through all these regulatory hoops, who have to have their place up to code, who have to pay certain taxes, who have inspections, who have this and that and this. All these things add costs. They had, you know, in France a few years ago after a big fire incident in a hotel in which some people tragically were, were killed, um, fire doors had to be installed uh, in every hotel. And so I saw all of these small properties struggle with how to install these fire doors and, and the cost that that incurred and, and the fact that they had to take out stairwells or reconfigure things at enormous expenses. And of course, that you know, was a huge cost for them. And you do not see those same sorts of regulatory measures being imposed upon people who are renting out a room. You know, So it isn't... And I think it's interesting that the sharing economy has this sort of like narrative built around it that's warm and fuzzy. And a lot of that is because there's some really smart, well-paid marketing people at these companies, you know, and they do a very good job of pushing these agendas, working at like government level, you know, to make sure that their, their campaigns are heard and that they're positioned as like a positive force for the, for, for the world. And so people are kind of making, I, I feel like there's a general attitude that sharing equals good. I mean, we're calling it sharing. Mm -hmm. We're not right. calling it unregulated. Right. It's unregulated, right. you know. We call it sharing. How could you not like the sharing economy? You even smile when you say it, you know. But uh, so ethics, it's confusing. It isn't just that like one is good and one is bad. It's, sure. it's a long conversation. Right. And most of us just want to go on vacation. <laughs> right. Most people don't want to think about that. They just want a nice place that doesn't cost too much and they're going to have a good time. Yeah. Tom, I'm curious. Are you finding that people are trying to be opportunistic in terms of traveling to places like uh, Paris, Belgium, or Turkey, which have suffered a blow to tourism and might be offering deals to get people to come back? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. And I, I don't see opportunism necessarily. Um, present in those markets. I mean, I've looked at um, before various, you know, horrible recent attacks in different places before and after we see a hit to reservation volume, you know, but then it kind of builds back up. Reminds me of, you know, New York in 2001 um, 
And so pretty, pretty quickly, right? I mean, like, I feel like it's like maybe, you know, usually yeah. studies say like six months, 12 months. But when months we remember like how, how the city felt, like we wanted tourists here, mm -hmm. you know? Paris wants tourists there. So I, I don't see that as opportunism. I, I see it as actually supporting the economy. And there's obviously a distinction, you know, between places like Paris, Belgium, um, maybe to a lesser degree, Istanbul, places like that, um, that have, you know, I mean, in some ways, like, first of all, the, you know, they're isolated incidents. Um, in some ways, the place you want to be, I mean, it sounds weird, but the place you want to be is a place that was just attacked because, you know, security is going to be at its, at its highest. Um, I think the, the other side of the coin is a place like Egypt, which just, you know, cannot catch a break. And, um, you know, uh, the numbers are just staggering in terms of where it was even five, six, seven years ago um, compared to where it's been in the last few years. And I think that, you know, a place like that, where it's just been one thing after another, political turmoil, terrorism. Um, uh, I mean, there are opportunities to be to be taken there for sure. Um, I mean, some of the we, we did a story. Um, it was probably two or three years ago. Um, just if I take, taking a look at some of the um, some of the bigger resorts, um, and they've like you know they were like at like twenty percent capacity or something like that. Um, so. I, I mean, I guess it's sort of semantics. Oppor one person's opportunism is another person's opportunity. You know, I mean, it's sort of it's it's uh, they are they were desperate for tourists. They were happy to cut rates. I'm, well, I'm not necessarily happy, but they were you know they were willing to cut rates um, to get people to come back. Um, and so, yeah, I have no problem with people sort of you know looking at situations like that and saying like now's the time now's the time to go, or even you know outside of the realm of terrorism and just like financial turmoil. If we look at Greece, it's another example of, um, I, I, I was in Greece two years ago and that was already, I mean, a year ago was terrible, but two years ago it was starting to get kind of, you know, dicey and people were really happy to have us there. You know, there, Americans were already being kind of told the story of like, Ooh, better stay away. You don't really know what's going to happen. You know, credit cards. Um, but it was, it was fantastic. People were really happy to see us. Another great example is Mexico. And the, the dollar is killing the peso. Um, we were there a few months ago and had an amazing time. And the same thing, everybody just, I mean, they're, you know, and also I think people, Mexico is a great example. It's a giant country um, with lots of areas and people, I mean, I, even just telling people that I was going to Mexico, they'd be like, oh, are you going to be okay? Is that, is that, you know, and it's like, we were going to Mexico City and um, Acamal, which is right outside of Tulum. So two, you know, very safe places um, if you do them smart. And, um, you know, of course there are areas in Mexico that I think are off, off limits to, to, to the vast majority of tourists. Um, but that's true in a lot of places where that, that I think that there's this sort of, you know, perception of, of what, what reality is. And it's just, it's not real. It's not realistic. Dan, what, uh, I know you did some research, so can you share what some of the most popular frugal traveler columns have been? And I don't know if you're able to draw any great insights from, sure. from that. Yeah. So I, it's funny. I just, I, 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 I was curious and I, and I checked and it, it actually ended up being, if you had asked me without checking, <laughs> I probably would have guessed the top five. I have to say, I'm sort of proud of myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's an, it's an interesting mix. So we, you know, we, we try to divvy up that column into it's, it, it's, I don't know if this is exactly right. Maybe two thirds 
destination pieces and a third sort of servicey tip oriented things. Um, the tip oriented stuff is is tough because it's it's hard to keep it fresh. I mean, it's sort of like they're sort of the basic tips that you can all you can we could put out every six months and people would be happy with them. Um, uh, so number one was um, we have the series now called a thousand dollar a day in for a hundred dollars. So the idea is you get a concierge at a high end hotel to give you like this ridiculous itinerary that nobody in the right minds would do. Um, no offense. I husband. bet some of your <laughs> readers. Yeah, I bet yeah. some of your wealthy no, readers it's true, do it's do true. that. It's true. God bless. And they can read, read, read those columns and be like, I'll do the expensive ones. But um, and then it's the columnist job to sort of pivot off of those and um, find cheap versions. And the vast majority of the things, the things that he finds, I'm like, I would totally do that. I mean, you know, great, you know, we've, we did, we've done them in, in a bunch of cities. The number one was Paris. Um, and, uh, that's a great example of a city that like, obviously you could spend a million dollars in Paris. It is a totally budget friendly city. You can, you can, you can do it. Um, great, you know, prefix lunch deals. You don't, you know, talking about lodging, you stay in a, the, 10th or small or the 14th or whatever and you know save on lodging um anyway that was number one um also just making the top five was new york um uh, i'll just note that we've also done those on london tokyo hong kong that might be it for now um and uh they've all been really appealing so th those two were in the top five um the number two was um every time we do a places to go issue, which is every, every January, um, we do a sort of ways to save in the coming year. So um, ways to save in, um, well, it was for 2016, um, was up there. Um, we also did a, a story on um, the best way to save on cell phone plans overseas. I think honestly that it's less on how to save and just what to do like yeah. people have no i mean it's just so complicated it's really confusing um yeah. and i think you know there's just a lot of people who really don't want to be like putting in sim putting in out sim cards and like I'm, I'm one of them i'm just like i don't know if that's worth it to me have you done it yet i i have i did it i just want to say i did it once a few years ago and i think i didn't do enough research <laughs> <laughs> that before, is, it's funny before. because that's actually our number one article yeah, um, really. on euro cheapo is how to use which I wrote a few, like a year ago yeah. about how to use how to buy a SIM card in Europe, mm -hmm. and that's probably like. And then our number two most popular is how to set up your iPhone yeah. or your smartphone, so that right. you don't. So it, that's funny. Yeah, it's interesting that that's in your top five as well. I mean, that's yeah. like what people are clearly yeah. looking for. This like, is what the hell to do with our phone? And I think yeah. it's been slow, but I think the phone companies are very slowly catching up to the fact that this is. You know, when we were down in Mexico. Um, uh, I decided to. I've AT and T, so I got a you know a, one of their packages. And part of the thing is, like, I call them like they're rattling off numbers, you know, data usage, whatever. And I'm like, I don't know, like, I don't know what I need. I don't, you know. Um, and I'm thinking about how much am I using Google Maps, and you know, so a lot of it is sort of figuring out um, just sort of what you're willing to spend your time and energy on. Um, and then the the, uh, the just to round out the, the top five here. Um, the one of them actually just went up last week, so if people want to see it, it's at nytimes.com/travel, which was uh, which were these three sort of sort of crazy airfare hacks um, that are totally doable. They take a de they definitely take 
an amount of energy and um, and time that the average traveler is probably not willing to spend. Um, but they can totally save you money. Um, the easiest one I think actually that people probably can do is if you are booking through um, a, a directly through an airline. Um, if you go th- a foreign airline, if you go through the the native language version of uh, that booking site, you may be able you may be seeing different rates um, in their original currency. Um, and uh, Lucas Peterson, our, our columnist, found one I think it was Norwegian Air, um, where he saved I think it was like 150 bucks on, on an airfare. Now, obviously, it's not going to happen every time. Um, it does require a certain amount of work because you have you're to dealing learn Norwegian. Norwegian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to spend five Hire years in Norwegian. <laughs> no, I think now with like Google Translate and stuff, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's not actually a you know it's not, it's not possible. It's doable. Um, and um, the hard the hardest part is going through the booking process because that's all, you know you're like am I pushing the right button here like you know. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I encourage people to read that article because they they're they're really even they're just they're just entertaining to read actually. Um, there's one really insane one which I don't know if people would you know I don't know if, I'm curious to know if anybody's actually tried it uh, where United I think is the only airline to do this where they basically allow you to um, if you when when, when you're de- Designating your stop over, um, it's open ended. It can be for as long as you want. So there's a scenario. I won't go. I won't go through all of it because it's incredibly complicated. But there's a scenario in which you make your um, stop over your hometown, and you basically plan two different trips in and out of your hometown using your hometown as your stopover. And you can it can you can it can be like six months later. So when you're, you're living, the, you're basically you, you, just exactly. experiencing exactly. your stopover. I think it's within 12 months maybe that you have to so, so if you get two trips in a year. Um and you so you basically get like two free legs of a trip. Um so it's yeah it's I can't tell if it's a loophole or if they know that they're doing it. And it's I, I it's very it, it like I said takes a lot of forethought and a lot of planning, but in theory you could see, be saving like literally hundreds hundreds of dollars. It really seems like the theme of what you guys have been talking about is um, budget traveler, do your homework because mm-hmm. it's not just as simple necessarily as like going to kayak looking for the cheapest price. Yeah, well, because also when you're doing a search, you know, if you if you type in like, how do I book cheap uh, train tickets in Italy, right? depends on how savvy you are on the web already. A lot of people aren't really that savvy. I mean, I would assume that most people listening to the Skift podcast are going to be savvy because they're like into tech news and travel tech, you know, so they're probably pretty savvy and they understand that the top results that they're seeing are Google ads, right? But there are a lot of people out there and a lot of studies that have shown that most people don't know that those are ads, you know, those, those top slots. So they're going to click through and they're going to be on an agency site. Um, agencies that are great businesses, you know, staffed by wonderful people, but they have to make their money as well. You know, this leads to another tip and it reminds me of something that Dan was just talking about, which is that, you know, like your um, booking in Norwegian tip, uh, when you're booking train fares in Europe, you know, a lot of people wind up on a big U.S travel booking portal, which is great. And they, they provide a great service. They're based in the States and they can give you, you know, a phone number and telephone advice and that sort of thing. But people don't realize that they can just go to the train websites, you know, the rail websites of these national railways, and they can 
book these things, now almost all of them have English language sections that are the exact same website. And um, there is one big exception. But for the most part, they're the, um, they're the same site and they can book things like far in advance and get great deals or at least three months in advance and get really good deals. France is a little bit trickier. Um, if you click the English language, I believe, the English language tab and choose the American flag, you're going to be redirected to an agency. If you click the British flag, I believe that you'll be on uk.sncf. So anyway, just go to SNCF. Make sure you're still on the Speaking SNCF and you print. can book these. Yeah, but you know, the, the, the trains have had to really compete with the bargain airfares that are out there. We talked about buses, but we didn't really talk about Ryanair that much, you know, which is huge. You know, you can fly around for a pound or, you know, 10 pounds or something like that. So that's a really cheap way to get around. And the national railways have had to compete with that because they have to fill up their trains. So they're offering great deals. The Bonn, you know, the German Bonn, the um, SNCF in France, uh, others, uh, Trenitalia, uh, Renfe in Spain, like they're all trying to play catch up here and they're offering $20 fares, you know, $19 fares, that kind of thing. One, one other thing that just popped into my head in terms of Doing the work, and sometimes you know, obviously, it can feel overwhelming. Um, I think for certain parts of the world, especially where you're dealing with, I mean, I think China is a great example. It's such a huge country. There's so many, you know, you're dealing with, you know, national companies, regional companies, private companies. Um, we did a story probably two, three years ago about what about going to a travel agent, like, and, and, and sort of all of this. All of this, um, all these tools that we have now at our disposal. Um, when does it actually make sense to just be like, you know what, I give up, and I'm just going to go to somebody <laughs> who knows what they're doing? And um, Seth, our, our former uh, frugal traveler columnist, um, did some sort of mock trips, and uh, in a place like China is a great example, um, where you know getting there fine, but getting around, I mean, if you're making multiple stops, if you're taking, you know. Um, a regional airline from here to here, and then a train and whatever. I mean, they can they know exactly where to go and exactly what a good rate is, um, and that's a lot of time and energy spent that is probably you know over most people's heads and overwhelming. Um, and, and where a mistake, a first time mistake, could kind of ruin exactly, your trip. Exactly, good point. Yeah. So so I think you know, in a, I mean, living in a city like New York, you. I live out in Queens and I'm like constantly passing by all these like, you know, you know, an Ecuadorian travel agent and a Chinese one and a Thai one. And I'm sort of like, who, who goes to these places? Like what, were these places still in business? Yes. They actually makes a lot of sense in some ways. Um, and I think those, those businesses are largely catering to a, you know, native population. But you know, if, if, if you're looking to do a complicated trip, um, on the cheap, you know, in a place like, China or Southeast Asia, or we did one. One of the examples we did was in Turkey. I mean, you know, places where they're going to be complicated things in other languages. Um, you know, check out a travel agent. It might make sense. Travel agents will be very happy to hear this podcast. And as long as we're making old school recommendations, I would also recommend that people uh, buy guidebooks. <laughs> this is, wow. you know, I know we're really going old school. You're going to kick us out of here, but I, um, <laughs> I feel like. You know, I, I've spent so much time running around European cities and hunting down hotel rooms, right? And I see so many American tourists walking around, like, all day. That's what I see. I can't tell you how many people I've seen trying to find information that is so obvious, right? That would be in any 
rough guide, lonely planet, Rick Steves, you name it, photos. Like this is basic stuff. And people are like trying to fire up tablets. They're looking for <laughs> Wi-Fi connections. I was like walking around the Athens and walking around the Acropolis, you know, which is like giant and sunny and hot and people are like trying to get devices to work and read it in the sun like you know what you don't there is a simpler solution that people have been doing <laughs> for like a hundred years and uh, and they're available for like 1695 and they travel really well and they give you something to read on and like dog ear you know I know that that's a really uncool thing to say but <laughs> uh, and people don't want to pack it and lug it around but they work yeah, I'm gonna co-sign on that on that, on that, <laughs> on that, on that tip. I'm 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 still a big fan, and I also, in terms of you know, if you're gonna spend more than a week somewhere, um, just to sort of orient yourself, the guidebooks can be really great. I mean, I was the first thing I always do. Um, you know, uh, when I open a guidebook, is go to that. that usually, it's like the opening section about like customs and things like that. I mean, I just don't want to embarrass myself, you know. So things like you know, tipping. I mean, it's. It, it, it's it varies all over the world. Um, uh, you know, making sure you're not going to get ripped off. I mean, th- things like that. I think you know the guidebooks are great at. Um, sometimes I'll even like leaf through one before I leave for somewhere and just leave it at home, but just feel a little more armed with information. What neighborhoods to go to, how to get you know, how to use the subway system, that sort of thing. All right, S- sound advice, I'd say. <laughs> so, what are the biggest mistakes people make when they're trying to stick to a budget? when they're traveling? I see a number of big sort of obvious red flags when I look over itineraries that readers send me or even family members show to me. Um, One of the big easy ones is, well, I mean, aside from like going to the most popular destinations in the world during high season, um, you know, and not taking advantage of sort of low or shoulder season if it's available to you. just the itinerary itself, thinking that you have to fly home out of the place that you flew into is just kind of a really big red flag that you might be making like an, an unnecessary day's journey to get back someplace when you don't need to. You can fly into Paris and fly home through Rome, right? You, you, and then have kind of a linear uh, trip and not have to get all the way back up to Paris. That's that's a really big obvious one because I see people rushing back to to fly home out of wherever they flew into and spending a day or even two days like you know trekking as quickly as possible back up to that point of arrival. Mine would be sort of actually a corollary to that, which is a more general travel tip, but I think works uh, in terms of saving money as well. Um, which is trying to do too much. I just feel like I think people. I mean, obviously, it depends on what kind of traveler you are. Some people like this kind of travel, but um, when I hear people are, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, London and Paris and Rome and Berlin in seven days or whatever, I, I just I don't understand it. And I think inevitably you're going to find yourself paying more um, to try to do that and um, fighting with your spouse. And, yes, that's right. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think that you know, if 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 you sort of concentrate, find a spot, find a spot that you like. Not even necessarily a big city. Find a spot that you like and find you know a good, reasonably priced place to stay um, as like your sort of your home base. Figure out what you know does train travel, bus travel, car travel. What what makes the most sense in that specific spot? Um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a big one. Guys, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 